0: you're listening to the mens rea podcast and this is the story of colin ireland three-story brick building, offering craft beers and a seasonal menu. It boasts a roof garden terrace for summers spent drinking cold cider in the sun, and slouchy Chesterfield couches for cozying up with a group of friends for drinks and chats over their gourmet bar snacks. Its decor is modern, crisp, clean, and a little bit shabby chic, and the fact that there's been a pub operating there since the mid-1800s but the young, modern, smart, casual after-work crowd has not always been its regular clientele in that period. It was once named the Coal Hearn. It started out as a Victorian workman's pub, but in the 1950s it morphed into a gay bar, given its proximity to the London theatres. Over the next 20 years or so, it grew to fill a niche, with the gay leather community and those involved in BDSM. It got a reputation, which it fostered, Of being seedy. Its windows were either blacked out with paint or plastered with advertisements of gigs and club nights, and each floor was thick with cigarette smoke. Its loud and slightly menacing atmosphere provided a level of anonymity to its visitors, and many gay and not yet out celebrities would frequent the pub for this very reason. Well known clientele included people such as Rupert Everett, Freddie Mercury, and Anthony Perkins it was grotty and rebellious and a bit dangerous feeling. A code of sorts had been imported from the gay scene in San Francisco, whereby the patrons of the pub identified their particular kink by wearing a coloured handkerchief. It identified what they were into and what role they wanted to play, whether they were tops or bottoms. Colin Ireland was born in Dartford, Kent, on March 16th, 1954. Dartford is basically a little satellite of London. It lost much of its industry to the capital during the Industrial Revolution, and this was reflected in people's lifestyles. Most people headed to London to find work. Colin's father abandoned his 17-year-old mother shortly after he was born. His early life was unstable. They moved nine times in less than six years. Once, his mother moved while he was in school, and the boy had no idea. He returned home to the wrong house. Eventually, his mother remarried. When she became pregnant again in 1964, she was determined again to have her baby. But her and her new husband were in dire straits financially. She placed Colin in care with a foster family in Wainscot, Kent. Those couple of months were comparatively uneventful in Colin's life. But he eventually returned to his mother and stepfather after the new baby was born and they had got housing in West Kingston. It wasn't long after this that his stepfather walked out on them. His mother married once again when Colin was twelve to a man who would stick by her and provided a degree of stability in their lives. But Colin's beginnings had been far from ideal. When he got to school, he was bullied. His constant moving meant that he was always the new boy, and he was a small, skinny kid he called himself a runt. But at 13, he had a growth spurt and transformed into a tall, broad, strong young man. He managed to pick up some unskilled labouring positions, but eventually found himself committing petty crimes. His robberies were soon caught by the police, though, and he was sent to a borstel of sorts, Finchton Manor. It wasn't quite like the other juvenile facilities, the ones that we're used to hearing about, it was pretty informal and focused on rehabilitation and resocialization of troubled youths, mainly from middle-class backgrounds. But Kent County Council had also paid for two places in 1970, and one of those was given to the troubled Colin Ireland. He had done reasonably well in school, and it may be that social services thought that in the right environment, he might be able to thrive. But Ireland was bullied here too, as one of only two boys from a poor background, he was a target. In retaliation, he set fire to one of the ringleader's belongings. He was kicked out of Finchton, and not wanting to be in the care of the council, he ran away to London. When there, he picked up some odd jobs to try and make some money, and hung around with a group of teenagers in a similar position to himself at the arcade in Piccadilly Circus. Unlike his comrades, however, Colin refused to prostitute himself like many of the other boys, who would take money or a place to stay from paedophiles preying on their vulnerability. He said himself that he did find himself in a few unpleasant situations, however, and that this may have had a long-lasting effect on him. Soon, though, Colin began to supplement his income with crime yet again. He began to burgle houses and was soon caught. This time, he was sent to a proper borstal, Hollisley Bay in Suffolk. It was a low-risk borstal and was open. The young offenders sent there were less likely to run off. So, Colin walked out one day and didn't come back. He hid in the countryside for a few days, but eventually drew attention to himself as being a teenager on his own, wandering around. And he was picked up again and sent to a more secure borstal. He was finally released at 18 in mid-1972. He carried on his life as it had been before he was sent to the reform schools, taking odd jobs and supplementing this with robbery. That is, until he was cut again in 1975. This time, at age 21, he was sent to a real prison, serving a year out of an 18-month sentence for burglary, theft of a car, and damage to property. He was released at the end of 1976 and moved to Swindon, where he began his first real relationship This was with a woman from the West Indies who was five years his senior and who had four children. They lived together for a few months and even thought about marriage, but eventually Colin was sent back to prison for demanding and menace, and after this stint he was arrested again for robbery. In between jail stints he worked as a bouncer, aided in this by his size. He also joined the Auxiliary Fire Service as a part-time volunteer firefighter. After his prison stint for robbery, he worked as a chef in London. He got into survivalism and even tried to join the French Foreign Legion, but his criminal record worked against him. I guess they've become picky. He never actually managed to join any army, despite what reports, and his Wikipedia page, might say. It was at one of the survivalist meetings that he had attended where he met 36-year-old Virginia Zamet, she had been in a car accident in her early 20s and had ended up in a wheelchair, which was frustrating for someone who had once been an active outdoors woman. Colin made her feel like she was more than just a woman in a wheelchair. They were married in 1982, and Colin doted on her five-year-old daughter. He even volunteered at her school, where Virginia also worked, and helped teach the kids to read and draw. He had a talent for this, it would seem. But despite the stability provided by this relationship – Colin continued to get into trouble. He was sent away yet again for attempted deception and similar offences. He was also becoming increasingly more aggressive. He cheated on Virginia in 1987, and when she found out, she divorced him. In 1989, Colin headed out to Devon to practice his survivalist skills on the desolate moors. But he got distracted by Janet Young, who owned and operated the Globe Pub in Buckfastley, a small town with its biggest claim to fame being that it's home to the Benedictine Monastery responsible for producing Buckfast. It's a fortified wine, which is basically rocket fuel for delinquent teenagers all over the British Isles. She was a single mother and struggled to run the pub on her own. Soon Colin was helping her and her two kids out. She thought that the relationship was going well, despite Colin's increasingly violent behavior – Nothing major had happened, just breaking some stuff during arguments and the like, and he was such a help to her around the business. Just after Easter, 1990, Janet took herself and her kids to London for a well-deserved break. Colin had dropped her there and was to pick them up. She waited, and waited, but he didn't turn up. Worried, she rang the Globe to see what had happened – She stood shocked as one of her employees said that Colin had returned to the pub, packed up some things he said were being seized by the bailiff due to unpaid debts, and left in her car. She soon found out that he had emptied her bank account, too. After that, Colin Ireland lived a quiet life for a few years, but eventually resurfaced working in Southend-on-Sea at a homeless shelter. This was despite the fact that he was homeless for much of the time he worked there himself but he was a good worker and was well-liked by his manager. Soon the manager started hearing troubling stories about Colin, though. Other members of staff were saying he had been groping some of the female residents. His manager refused to believe the allegations, citing some sort of conspiracy amongst the other staff members, but Colin came under a lot of pressure in the now tense atmosphere and eventually left the job shortly after. He took a menial job breaking up pallets for recycling a few days later, It was boring and unsatisfying work, but by this time he was staying in a rooming house and he had bills to pay. At this point, he fell into a depression. He thought, he's such a loser. He'd achieved nothing, had nothing to show for his life whatsoever. He had no career to speak of. He had failed relationships and no family. He entered 1993 with a determination to make a name for himself, and he had come up with a plan. In early 1993, Ireland lost his job and was living on a welfare payment, at the time, 64 quid every two weeks. He also had rent assistance. But he didn't let that interfere with his plans and began to research serial killers. He read the popular true crime book, Whoever Fights Monsters, written by the FBI agent who coined the phrase serial killers, Robert Ressler. He watched crime shows on TV. He decided he would target the gay community, because they were shy of the police, and he honed in on the BDSM scene in particular, because he figured they'd probably let him tie them up without much of a fuss. But he knew he would need to have all the tools he needed to carry out his plan himself, so he went about putting together a murder kit, with the restraints that he would need. He bought unremarkable stuff, so no one would pass comment when he bought them, and to make sure that he wouldn't be remembered at the shops. He knew he would have to remove anything incriminating from the scene, and also carried a spare set of clothes to frustrate fibre identification. He knew he would have to get rid of everything after, and he would have to wait in the flats until morning to leave, so that his presence wouldn't be suspicious. He had everything prepared, and was ready to be famous. Later, Mike Barry, a clinical psychologist interviewed for a documentary on Ireland, would state, quote, Having decided he was a nobody, he then wanted to be a somebody, and one of the best ways to be famous is to be a killer. We all know about Ian Brady. We all know about Peter Sutcliffe, Robert Black. He wanted to be in that league, end quote. Peter Walker was a 45-year-old choreographer and director. He worked in the West End in the theatres there. On March 8th, 1993, Peter Walker tucked a black handkerchief into his back right pocket of his jeans and entered the Colhearn pub. It indicated that he was a submissive, looking to have a bit of sadomasochistic fun. He was looking for a dom. After sipping at his beer at the bar for a while, he noticed a tall, muscular man sitting on his own, sipping a glass of water, dressed casually in jeans and a t-shirt. He noticed the man had a matching black hanky dangling from the left back pocket of his jeans. He was a dom. Peter decided to approach him. He was only looking for a fling, and so the chit-chat between the two was just that. They didn't spend time getting to know one another before Peter stood and asked the man, whose name was Colin, to go back to his place. Colin agreed. So they jumped into a cab. Peter didn't notice when Colin pulled a pair of black leather gloves over his hands. Peter gave an address in Battersea to the driver, and off they went. Two days later, on the 10th of March, the caretaker in Walker's apartment complex in Battersea noticed that Walker's dogs were barking. Peter doted on those dogs, and he was often seen taking them out for walks around the grounds. A white German shepherd and a black lab, because I know you want to know. It was really unusual to hear them bark. When the caretaker thought about it, he realized that he hadn't seen Peter Walker in a few days. He knocked on the door and the only response was the dogs barking even louder. He pulled out his master key, opening the door and took in the scene before him as he entered Peter's flat. The place looked like it had been ransacked, drawers pulled out and stuff thrown everywhere the dogs had been shut into the spare bedroom, and there was no sign of their owner. His stomach dropped when he made his way to the master bedroom, fearing that he knew what he was going to find there. But he had no idea what he was walking in on. Someone was lying on the bed, covered in a duvet, with only his feet poking out. There were obvious signs of violence. Peter was dead. On top of the duvet. A bizarre scene was constructed from plush toys. They had been arranged in a 69 position, indicating that this was some sort of messed up shit that the poor caretaker had just walked in on. He rang the police, who responded quickly to the call that had told them about what seemed to be a particularly gruesome murder. When the Met arrived, they took in the scene and the weird tableau laid out over Peter Walker's body. They began inspecting the crime scene and taking photographs. Eventually, the duvet was pulled back to reveal that Peter Walker had died a particularly horrific death. He had been beaten and whipped while tied to his own bed, unable to defend himself from the attack. He had been gagged with a knotted condom, and another was shoved up his nose. Around 5pm that night, the Samaritans, a suicide prevention and mental health crisis helpline, received an odd phone call. The caller gave an address in Battersea and said two dogs had been left in a room for two days. The confused volunteer responded that this was a matter for an animal welfare organization, not something that the Samaritans could deal with. Then the caller said that the reason the dogs were locked up was because their owner was dead, and he had killed him. This was the kind of thing not covered by the Samaritans' confidentiality, and the volunteer immediately rang the Battersea police. The caller had been quite detailed, and the police were quite positive that this was likely Peter Walker's killer. It seems he had been worried that nothing of the death had been reported yet, and he thought perhaps Walker's body had not yet been found. A few hours later, a news editor at The Sun answered a similar call. The man on the other end of the phone was calm and told the reporter how he had made a New Year's resolution to kill a gay man. Scotland Yard was called, and a couple of hours later, the reporter got a call back to confirm that the details of the murder he had been given were true. But the investigation into Walker's death stalled. The place had been wiped down for fingerprints. The restraints used to tie Peter to the bed had been removed. They discovered that the cause of death was asphyxiation from having a plastic grocery bag put over his head. They did find that money had been taken from Walker's account on the morning of march ninth after his estimated time of death. They reckoned that he had been tortured for his pin. It was nearly impossible to trace Walker's movements after he had left work that day. No one from the Colhern was going to come forward to give a statement about what they had seen in the pub that night. Christopher Dunn was a librarian. He worked long hours five days a week, and returned to his conservative middle-class home in Harrow, a suburb in northwest London. He kept his private life to himself. He was a gay man, and there was no way he wanted his conservative neighbours to know that. He most certainly did not want them to know that he was into masochistic bondage sex, on Friday, the 28th of May, he'd managed to finish work early, so he went home, showered and dressed, and got the tube to Earl's Court Station. He had a pint in his hand at the Colherne his favourite pub, just before the clock struck six. Soon after, he was approached by another man who asked if he could sit at the table with him. The man introduced himself as Colin. Despite the fact that Chris was secretive, he wasn't an unsociable person – A friend had expected to hear from him over that weekend, and when he hadn't gotten a call from Chris two days later, he called by the house. When he went in, he was met by an horrific scene and called the police. Christopher's death was suspicious. It most certainly wasn't natural, but the cause of death was not initially apparent. He was found naked except for some black leather belts and a harness. There was a burn to his testicles and whip marks on his body. There were signs of asphyxiation, but no readily apparent explanation for them. The scene had been wiped down, and so it appeared to the police that Christopher had been on his own when he had died. They didn't know that he had been robbed of his cards and tortured for his pin, and that there were restraints missing from the scene. There would still be an autopsy and an inquest into the death, but for the moment the police were ready to say that this was some sort of bizarre, self-inflicted accident. The City of London is huge. There are about 8 million people in the city itself, and that doubles when you take in the metro area. Except for the square mile of the City of London, the protection of the city falls to the Metropolitan Police, with its headquarters in New Scotland Yard. But this huge force is split into five divisional operations – each functioning with a high degree of autonomy, though they all report to the yard. In 1993, despite the districts keeping each other informed of what was going on, the data sharing of their IT systems was not particularly effective. Because of this, the similarities between Dunn and Walker's deaths went unnoticed. On top of this, the gay community was still very closeted in the UK at this time, Although gay sex was decriminalized in 1967, the law was that, in addition to it being consensual, it could only be engaged in by men over the age of 21, not 16, like straight sex, and it must occur in private. The privacy element allowed the continued legal persecution of gay men who engaged in group sex, had sex in hotels, or even had sex in a private home that happened to have other people in it. It was unlikely that gay men in London would approach the police with information regarding the death of two of their community members, never mind gay men who were into BDSM, which, as a community, just days before Walker's death, had heard the news that the case of R.V. Brown had ruled such practices to be a crime, even if it was consensual. Now, this one is an interesting case. Forgive me for inserting a personal anecdote, but I have a distinct memory of hearing about this case for the first time. It was in a lecture on the law of torts during my very brief attempt at a bachelor's in law. Our instructor told us about the facts of the case. It involved a number of gay men who had met up in hotels to engage in some pretty extreme sadomasochistic practices. Not just bondage and dom-sub stuff, but breath play and suspension from body piercings and even some mutual wounding, stabbing and so on. It was quite extreme. The lecturer posed a question to the class. Should inflicting these kinds of wounds on another adult consensually be legal? Can you actually agree to have this kind of thing happen to you and the other person can't then be held responsible for anything consented to? She asked the class, who thought it should be illegal? Nearly the entire class raised their hands, about 40 or so young people. Who didn't think it should be illegal? My hand shot up joined by one other, Fiona, my friend who was sitting next to me. Hi, Fiona. We were totally outnumbered. Now, whether our classmates thought that there was a right answer to this question, i.e. what the court had ruled, and what role that might have played in the straw poll, I have no idea. But I do know that it seemed that a lot of people agreed with this idea, that sexual fetishes that went so far as to cause physical harm, even if it was consented to, was somehow wrong. It was a moral judgment that Fiona and I weren't willing to take as we saw it, but the police in the RV Brown case didn't agree. They knew that these men were going to be in the hotel, and they raided it, specifically to catch these guys in the act. No one had sought medical attention or called for help or revoked consent at any point, and in 1993, When the first gay man into leather had died in London, this is what the other clientele of the Colhearn had read in the newspapers just a few days before. And you'd best believe that it was in their minds when it came to the idea of talking to the police. Patrons of the Colhearn would risk being arrested if they came forward. It wasn't at all an unreasonable fear. And the Met did not have the best reputation for investigating crimes against gay people and had little to no knowledge of this part of the underground London gay scene. Perry Bradley III was from about 60 miles outside of Dallas, Texas. He was a Democrat and worked as a fundraiser for the party. He was from a privileged background, and though he had the best of everything, that had come with a price. He was expected to be successful and to make a good marriage match. But this was a problem for Perry. He was gay. He had played along with his mother's matchmaking, but beat a hasty retreat from his hometown when he took up a management position with an international company and moved to London. He loved the huge and vibrant city, and although things were far from ideal for a gay man in the city, it was a hell of a lot better than what he had to deal with in Texas, which had strict sodomy laws. They were, of course, struck down in 2003... By the US Supreme Court. June 4th was a balmy summer evening in the city. Perry had walked the short distance from his flat in Kensington to the Colhearn. He was due to meet somebody, but he was about half an hour early, so he sat back in the beer garden to enjoy a drink in the sunshine and wait. Soon, though, a man approached him and asked if he could sit. The guy was big and beefy, and Perry was tempted, but apologized he was meeting a friend could he talk to him later the man said sure and wandered off but after waiting for a bit his date didn't show up and perry went off in search of the guy he found him again and apologized for the brush off earlier and asked to sit sure the man said he introduced himself as colin that evening the two men went back to perry's flat and colin asked him if he could tie him up Perry wasn't terribly enthused, but agreed when Colin said he needed it to get aroused. Colin tied him to the bed with handcuffs and ropes that he had brought to the flat himself. Two days later, residents of the Kensington apartment block began to worry at the smell emanating from the nice young American's flat. He hadn't been seen for a few days, and knocking at the door was getting no response. They called the police. Again, the police were baffled by the scene that they found in Perry's apartment. They weren't able to establish that he was in fact gay, his family had denied it, and his friends in London would only go so far as to say he was keeping an open mind about his sexuality. The scene had again been wiped down, and there was money missing from his bank account, withdrawn after his death. But there was a single plate and glass out on the table, so maybe Bradley had spent the evening alone and the bizarre murder had been part of another robbery. They didn't yet know that the second plate was in a rucksack, along with bindings at the bottom of the Thames. The various districts of the police force still had not connected the three deaths, and they were each getting increasingly frustrated at being unable to explain the bizarre deaths. Further north, in South End-on-Sea, Colin Ireland shared their frustration. He desperately wanted them to link the murder's to realise that they had a serial killer on their hands, and for his notoriety and infamy to begin. Andrew Collier was a 33-year-old caretaker who lived and worked in a retirement complex. He was out as gay to his neighbours, they didn't seem to care, and in fact the older ladies took a sort of maternal care of him and plied him with cakes and stories about their grandkids. On June 7th, Just three days after Perry Bradley's death, Andrew headed to the Coalhearn pub. He was a regular and was quite comfortable in the near-empty building. It was Monday and it was much quieter than at weekends, but he still might get some fun out of it, he thought. The place was never actually empty of patrons. He got himself a beer and sat at a table facing the door. He noticed when a tall, burly man entered the pub. He vaguely recognised him, thinking he must have seen him in the pub before. When the man turned from the bar with a pint in his own hand, Andrew raised his glass to him in invitation. The guy sat down and introduced himself. His name was Colin, and he lived in southend on sea Andrew thought, well, that explains the rucksack he has. He lived nearly two hours from the city, and the guy must have optimistically packed an overnight bag. Andrew didn't mind he was into it. The two eventually left the pub and headed to Andrew's apartment in Dalston, northeast of the city centre. The two chatted when they got back to the neat and tidy flat, but they were soon interrupted by a ferocious row that had started up outside. Andrew got up and looked out the window, and Colin came up behind him to see what was going on. He leaned out the window, holding onto a bar that ran across it and said something about drunk idiots. Then the two went to bed, and Andrew found out what kind of man he had brought home that night. He couldn't have known the danger that he was in. After he was secured to his bed, he was tortured and robbed. Two days later, his elderly neighbours caught the smell coming from his bedroom. The summer temperatures had remained high and ensured that as soon as the police responded to the neighbors' call, they could tell that Andrew was probably dead before they entered the flat. What they weren't prepared for was the scene that they met there. When they entered the bedroom, they were horrified to find Andrew lying on his back, with marks from being bound visible on his ankles, wrists, and neck. Again, there were burn marks on him, including cigarette marks indicating that he had been tortured. His cat had also been killed, and she was stretched out over his chest. And prepare yourself because this is bad. Her mouth had been wrenched open and placed over his penis. Her tail was then shoved into his mouth. Both had been strangled by rope. There was a condom placed over the end of the cat's tail and Andrew's penis. The cops retreated immediately. They didn't need much time to decide that this was a murder and that they needed to preserve the scene. But after the disbelief at the scene that they had just taken in faded from their minds, the detective chief inspector on site realized that this was too bizarre and ritualized to be a one-off murder. They decided to contact all the other offices across London to find out if they had had any similar murders. There had been a hundred and fifty murders in London in the last year, but as the officers combed through their files, they quickly narrowed down the relevant cases to those whose victims had been gay men and further to those who had had restraint marks and had been strangled or suffocated somehow. Eventually, there were only two cases left of interest to them. They called Kensington and inquired about Perry Bradley, but were told, no, he wasn't gay, so it couldn't be connected. Kensington was playing along with the family on this one, though there were definitely questions about Perry's sexuality. The next on their list was Peter Walker, The next on their list was Peter Walker. Remember that Battersea police had thought Christopher Dunn's death was some sort of bizarre accident. The Walker and Collier cases were very similar. Gay men, tied up but bindings removed, tortured, condoms found on the corpses and posed, one with soft toy, the other with his dead cat. It looked like the CID had been right in his suspicions. The forensics team was still working away in Andrew's flat. It had been wiped clean, nearly. The attacker had forgotten to wipe down the railing at the window that he had gripped two nights before to watch the row outside. One single fingerprint. And it wasn't Andrew's. The brutality of Collier's death meant that it was splashed all over the papers the next day, But it hadn't officially been linked to any others, and so it wasn't reported as a serial crime. Colin was becoming ever more frustrated and furious that his murders weren't being accurately reported. So he took himself to a public phone box and rang the police. The detective that he got through to, Gareth Barlow, no take that jokes please, didn't believe the anonymous voice on the other end that said he was a serial killer not until he started to recount the details of Collier's death. That got his attention. Three more calls to different police stations were made over the next hour. Each time, Colin repeated his victims' names and addresses and berated the police for not having connected them all yet. The puzzle had been solved for them. They no longer needed to search out connections themselves. Christopher Dunn's body was autopsied then, which found ligature marks on his throat faint enough that they wouldn't have initially been seen by the responding officers. The Met swung into action. The sicko had to be caught. Emmanuel Spiteri entered the Colherne pub on June 12th, dressed in his leather trousers and motorbike boots. It was an ostentatious way of dressing that he employed to attempt to hide his shyness. He was a chef, originally from Malta, and the 41-year-old had known at that stage a few of the regulars to the Coalhearn had died recently. But he wasn't aware of the true danger. The news had yet to break that Andrew Collier's murder was linked to the others and was part of a series of murders. He was wary, though, and as he sat down, he heard a voice behind him warning him to be wary of who he decided to go home with. But the man he spent the evening with, Colin, was a guy he'd seen around a good few times before. He was a regular like himself, and he invited Colin back to his flat in Catford in the southeast of the city. Still, Emmanuel probably realized his mistake when Colin had him trussed up on the bed and demanded his pin for his ATM card. He had heard enough about the strange deaths and murders to realize that he had been too trusting of a regular's face, and he probably knew what was coming. It was probably this knowledge that spared Emmanuel from the usual torture. Colin simply put the rope around his neck and killed him. The next morning, Ireland rang the police and told them that he had killed again. He told them that he'd read about serial killers and wanted to see if he could get away with it. He said he didn't like gay men, but he had picked them as targets because of the strained relationship the group had with the police. They were easy pickings. He told the police to look out for a dead man where there had been a fire. On the 15th of June, a landlady called the police to report that one of her tenants was dead. There had been a fire in his room and his death didn't look accidental. The police knew what they were going to find when they arrived at the flat in Catford. Emmanuel was still on the bed with visible signs of ligatures that had bound him to the bed and the remains of a fire made out of his papers and furniture. No serious damage had been done by the fire. It had probably only burned for a few minutes. The police now had a fifth victim. They were going to have to make considerable efforts to figure this out. They had nearly nothing to go on, just an unidentified fingerprint, the anonymous calls, and the bodies themselves. So the Met took action to bridge the gap between the gay community and the police force. The day Emmanuel was found... They held a midnight press conference, outlining the risk to those in the gay community. They thought that if the murderer was on the prowl, it might prevent a further death. The Lesbian and Gay Police Association was drafted in to help the investigating team and to provide a friendlier face to potential victims, and they circulated leaflets at the Pride Parade on June 19th of that year, both warning people and hoping to find some sort of lead. They also sought a number of psychological profiles of the killer from experts. Dr. Jonas Rappaport told police that he was of the opinion that the killer was not himself a homosexual, but simply posing as a gay man in order to attract his victims. He went on to say that whoever it was, was well organized, probably of large build and physically strong, which made him confident in his ability to overpower his victims. This description would bear out. Shortly after the Pride Parade appeal, someone came forward. He had seen Emmanuel on a train with another man the night that he died. This guy came forward despite the fact that he would effectively be outing himself to his friends and family to describe the man that he had seen Spiteri with to the police. His description was good enough to use the brand new eFit software to make a likeness of the person he had described. More witnesses came forward, and the image was refined and finally released to the public on the 24th of June. The police also found CCTV footage from the Charing Cross station, where Emmanuel had been seen, and after scouring over 450 hours of tape, they eventually spotted Spiteri and the man with him. It showed a tall, bulky guy, and his face was fully visible. On the 2nd of July, the police held another press conference. This time they spoke directly to the killer. They wanted him to stop killing and to talk to them, they said, and they released the e-fit and the CCTV still of him and Spiteri. It was only a matter of time before someone called in saying that they recognised him. Backed into a corner, Colin Ireland took matters into his own hands and found a solicitor in Southend-on-Sea. He went to the office and said that he needed to make a sworn statement. He said in this statement that he had in fact met Spateri that night and had gone back to his house, but when they got there, there was another man in the house. That made him nervous, and so he bowed out at that point and left. He said he hadn't initially made the connection between that incident and the murder he had seen in the press, and so when he did, he came forward to tell them what he knew. When the police were given this statement, they didn't even bother trying to check out the story. They just asked for fingerprints. There was nothing Ireland could do at this point, so he gave the fingerprints. But he was also fully confident that he had left no prints behind. He was wrong. Two days later, Colin Ireland was arrested on suspicion of murder. First, it was just for Andrew Collier, where his fingerprints had been found – but Emmanuel Spiteri was added to the charge sheet on the 23rd of July. He was held on remand, and the investigation continued. More witnesses came forward, saying that they had seen someone fitting Ireland's description with the other dead men in the Colherne pub. Stop. It seems Colin Ireland had thought the game was up by August 19th. He called one of the prison guards and asked to speak to a detective. He was ready to confess. He told them everything why and how he managed to murder five men over the course of four short months. He described his victims' last moments. He told them about the robberies and how he had thrown the bindings and other evidence away into the Thames. He described how he had told Perry Bradley, after he had tied him up, that he was just going to rob him. He said Perry had actually fallen asleep on the bed while Ireland ransacked the place, only to wake as the noose was slipped around his neck. He described in detail the torture of Christopher Dunn and Andrew Collier, and added that he had killed the cat in a rage as Andrew hadn't told him his HIV status, as if that somehow justified it. It would also seem that Ireland was annoyed by being dubbed the animal lover killer after he had killed Peter Walker by the newspapers. They had noted that he had locked the dog safely away, he didn't want people to think that he was soft, so he decided to hang the cat by the neck suspended over the top of the bedroom door. Finally, he told of how Emmanuel Spiteri had resisted him. He knew about the murders, and knew what he was in for. He refused to give Ireland his PIN number, saying he knew Ireland was going to kill him anyway. He could torture him if he wanted, but he wasn't going to tell. Ireland should just get on with it. Colin was calm throughout the interview and expressed no remorse for his actions. Despite the fact that this had been an attention-seeking exercise, so to speak, he didn't brag about his crimes, he just forthrightly told the police how he had carried out his attacks and what he had done after. He said Collier was the only one of his victims who had made him mad, and that Spiteri had been very brave. He also somehow came to the conclusion that Walker had secretly wanted to die, He said in his confession tapes, quote, I tied him up, I went and got a plastic bag from the kitchen, a carrier bag, put it over his head, and I think in a way he wanted to die, he probably didn't realise I detected him in this lack of desire to carry on. I think he knew he was going to die, he was quite controlled about it, it was almost like a thing that was going to happen, almost like a fate thing, end quote. He blamed his victims for putting themselves in a vulnerable position by approaching him or by inviting him back to theirs. He said, quote, I think it's been something that's been triggered in me sometime before. I felt if I was approached, it was likely that I would kill. I thought to myself, if I wasn't approached, something wouldn't have happened. I would have gone on my way and nothing would have happened, end quote. The only thing that bothered him, he said, was having to sit in the flats all night long with the dead bodies, watching their skin lose its colour and become blotchy. He was very insistent about the fact that he hadn't been on drink or drugs when he committed the murders. He wanted the police to understand that he had known exactly what he was doing. He also emphasised the fact that he wasn't gay himself. There was no sexual element to the crimes at all, he insisted. He said in this interview that he didn't have a problem with gay men. He had just picked them because they were easy targets. Though this doesn't quite jive with what his ex Janet Young had said. There was no financial motives for the crimes either, despite the robberies. Ireland had just used the money he had stolen from one victim to get the supplies and train tickets he needed for the next one. He was on benefits, after all. Colin Ireland decided that he would plead guilty and therefore the only time he appeared in court was at his sentencing hearing. It was held on the 20th of December 1993 in the Old Bailey and lasted about two hours. The details of his crimes were described for the record. Even the journalists in the court were shocked by the details provided. There was very little to be said to redeem Colin Ireland. His own defence counsel, Andrew Trollope QC, said that there had been no mitigating circumstances in this case. Two psychologists said that Ireland was entirely sane, not suffering from any serious mental illness whatsoever. Mr Justice Sachs described him as, quote, an exceptionally frightening and dangerous man, end quote, and sentenced him to life imprisonment at Her Majesty's pleasure, meaning that his imprisonment would be of an indefinite term everyone knew that this would mean Colin Ireland would probably never set foot in the free world again. His mother, who had failed him so horribly in his early childhood, sobbed as the sentence was read out. His stepfather was less sympathetic, and told the journalists upon hearing the sentence that that was what Ireland had deserved. One of the investigators on the case said that, although Ireland had admitted to five murders in total, He believed it was possible that there may have been up to six more that he might have been responsible for. I couldn't find anything else to back this up, but it just goes to demonstrate how Ireland came across to a seasoned detective. He was frighteningly dangerous and was seen as being capable of anything. One particular case that Chief Inspector Detective Albert Patrick describes in Fergus Mason's book, The Gay Slayer, is a case from January 1993, where a gay man was tied up and murdered in his apartment. He wasn't found for a few days, and at that stage, his two dogs had worried away at his body and ingested a decent amount of it. It does sound pretty similar to Colin's crimes. Personally, I don't think he would have been able to keep quiet if he felt like he had gotten away with murders. The murders were a means to an end to his ultimate goal of becoming somebody, being remembered for something, even if that something was horrific. There were also unsubstantiated rumours that he may have killed another inmate while in Wakefield Prison, and that he once had plans to kill the actor, Tom Cruise. Yes, you heard right. Apparently, Ireland had seen Tom at a bar in London, but the actor was whisked away before Ireland could get over to him to put his plan into action. So, was Colin Ireland a psychopath? Did he suffer from some sort of personality disorder, or might he have been a narcissist? It's hard to tell. People who were around him in his earlier years said yes. He could be self-centred, and seemed sometimes to be lacking in empathy but they thought that he had genuine connections with some people that he could be selfless and he could be kind it seems that colin ireland knew what he did was wrong but his desire to be noticed to feel like he had achieved something was stronger than his sense of right and wrong he said of himself quote i was probably 60% 70% quite a reasonable human being most of the time but there's that side of my character that is negative. It's quite cold and calculating, end quote. On the 21st of February, 2012, the news came that Ireland had died. A prison service spokeswoman said, quote, Colin Ireland died in Her Majesty's Prison Wakefield's healthcare centre today at 9.20am. He is presumed to have died from natural causes. A post-mortem will follow. As with all deaths in custody, the independent prisons and probation ombudsman will conduct an investigation. End quote. His autopsy concluded that he had died of pulmonary fibrosis, a disease of the lungs, and complications from a broken hip that he had suffered just days previously when he had fallen in the prison exercise yard. He was 57 years old. And I guess he got what he wanted. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Mens Rea podcast. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe, write and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. You can find us on Facebook or Twitter at Mens Rea Pod. join in on the discussion at the Mens Rea Pod discussion group, or you can send us in your questions, comments or suggestions to mensreapod at gmail.com. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsors on Patreon. Your support means a lot and it helps to defray some of the production costs of the podcast. Special thanks this week to Kevin May of the Mirths and Monsters podcast. He has recently upped his donation, so thanks very much, Kevin. Also, if you get a chance, check out his podcast, Mirths and Monsters. It really is an excellent podcast for all of the family to listen to. If you'd like to sponsor the podcast, head over to www.patreon.com forward slash mensreapod. I'd also like to thank our five-star reviewers on Apple Podcasts. This week is the Ireland edition. Thank you to Evie Evil Goth Pants. That's an excellent name. I hope you're still listening. I know it's been a while since you left your review in November. Thanks so much for getting in touch. to Arkham underscore sixty nine. Thank you very much. Thank you for the compliments about the research. Thank you to Fairwater Woman and Rosso Crusoe. And thank you for the five stars to Carrie Garda case also. That's going to be it for this week, so thank you very much for everyone who leaves reviews. I do read them and I love getting your feedback, so do head on over to Apple Podcasts or even Facebook and leave a review and a little bit of feedback. This podcast is researched, written, and produced by me, your host Sinead. With help this week from my assistants Gilgamesh and Schrodinger the Cat, all sources used for today's episode can be found on our website, www.mensreapod.com or in the show notes. Our theme song is "Quinn's Song First Dance by Kevin MacLeod with thanks to Ronan McHugh for help with sound engineering. Till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do.